You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Luke chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. You'll find stacks of hardback Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now or on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. Just start reading that Bible. See what happens in your life. Uh, We're going to look this morning at the large majority of Luke chapter 6. And I want to read for us to get us started, verses 27 to 36. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand to show our reverence and our readiness. We really believe this is God's Word. This is unlike any other book that we read. And we are eager to hear from the Lord this morning. So after this reading, I'm going to say this is the Word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. If you're using the journal, it's on page 48. Listen carefully. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak... Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend... To those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Since Christmas time, we have been in this study of Luke's gospel, journeying with Jesus. Luke was the first Christian historian. He was an intelligent and diligent man who had access to the best sources, eyewitness accounts, and he set out to write a reliable record of the ministry of Jesus. So in this gospel, we've been journeying with Jesus from Jesus' birth through his childhood and adolescent years, which we know very little about, honestly, to now Jesus is in his early 30s, and his earthly ministry has just begun. In the roughly three years of Jesus' ministry, he devotes himself to three things, healing of various kinds, teaching through sermons and stories, and gathering a community of followers. In the recent chapters that we've looked at, namely chapters 4 and 5, we've seen Jesus' healing ministry. We've seen that Jesus is indeed the one who makes all sad things come untrue. What the angel said to the shepherds at the scene of Jesus' birth, this is the one who will bring great joy to all the people, it's true. We've seen Jesus heal people who were demonized, people who have all sorts of diseases. 
He makes all sad things come untrue. As he has been healing in those chapters 4 and 5, he's also been gathering a community of followers known as disciples. A disciple, simply put, is someone who answers Jesus' call, follow me. Follow me. A disciple is someone who responds to Jesus with faith and who then is formed. So discipleship involves both faith and formation, both belief and obedience. Discipleship is apprenticeship. It is to go with Jesus, looking to him, learning from him, living out his teaching. So we've seen Jesus the healer. We've seen Jesus the gatherer of disciples. Today in chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus the teacher, the preacher. Chapter 6 is Jesus' first sermon. It is the king's speech. It's a very famous sermon known as the Sermon on the Plain. You can think of this sermon as Discipleship 101. Here, Jesus is going to teach us more about what it means to be one of his followers. It's a very practical question for you. What does it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of the Master? Jesus will show us in this passage that every disciple, every disciple will have three unmistakable marks, which I'll summarize like this. Hands, empty and open. A heart full of love, and not just any love, an extraordinary, supernatural love. And then finally, eyes fixed on truth. So hands empty and open, a heart full of love, eyes fixed on truth. Discipleship 101. Let's consider each of these. First, hands empty and open. Look at how the sermon begins. Blessed are you, Jesus says, who are poor, For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The very beginning of the sermon here, the preamble, if you will, is known as the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude, it means a pronouncement of happiness, a pronouncement of blessing. Jesus says, blessed is this type of person. Then he goes on to list the poor, the hungry, and so on. And in contrast to these, this person who is blessed is a person who is warned, woe to you who are rich, full, and so on. Now, at first glance, it may seem like Jesus is comparing many different types of people, but actually there are only two types here. And Jesus is piling up descriptive words so that we'll see just how these two types of people are different. The two types of people are the one who is blessed is described as poor now. 
hungry now, hurting now, even persecuted now. And the one who is warned in the passage is rich now, full now, laughing now, and popular now. What then is the main theme for the person who is blessed? What do all of these terms have in common? The one who is blessed is needy. Needy. Think about it. If you're poor, you need someone to provide for you. If you're hungry, you need someone to give you food. If you're hurting, you need a relief from that pain. If you're persecuted, you need to be accepted by a loving community. It's a person who's needy and knows it. And knows it. On the contrary, the person who's warned here is the person who needs nothing. Or at least that's what they think. They think they have everything. Their hands aren't empty. Their hands are full. Their life is not empty. Their life is full. It's full of laughter. It's full of partying. It's full of friends and fellowship. They have everything they need. They can't imagine anything but all they have achieved, all they have accumulated. What could they possibly need? You see, we mustn't, we mustn't miss Jesus' point in the preamble here. It's not as simple as we might think. It's not as simple as if you are rich, literally speaking, then you are automatically excluded from the kingdom of God. It's not as simple as if you are poor, you're automatically included in the kingdom of God. That's not the point Jesus is making. By the way, let me say this. If that was the point, if Jesus was saying here that if you're rich, you're automatically excluded, then none of us would think we're excluded. We would never think we're excluded because the way we define the word rich, here's what we do. We always say the rich are those who have more money than I do. And so the term never applies to us. Sneakily, we wiggle our way out from under it. But there's a deeper, more profound truth that Jesus is pointing out here. He's talking about the condition of the heart, the posture of the heart, two heart postures. The one who is blessed has a heart that kneels. The one who is warned has a heart that gloats. One person knows his need before the Lord. He comes with hands empty, and not just empty, but open. Please help me. The other person, the one who is warned, comes thinking he has everything he needs already. His heart gloats. And notice here again, this theme of the great reversal. We saw this back in Luke chapter 1. We'll see it throughout the gospel. In the very first Christmas song, Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings about her son, and she sings a song that says that her son will reverse all fortunes. This son, Jesus, will exalt the humble, will feed the hungry, will send away the rich. What's the point? The point is this. If you come to Jesus thinking yourself a king, if you come to Jesus with a heart that gloats, with hands that are already full, then he will send you away as a beggar. But if you come to Jesus as a beggar, with a heart that kneels, with hands that are empty and open, then Jesus will treat you like a king. 
He will welcome you with arms wide open. Discipleship 101 begins with this understanding of grace, humility. We come to Jesus rightly when we come to him humbly. There's a quote I love from a Puritan author named Samuel Rutherford. He wrote these words to a wealthy Scotsman long, long ago. I love this quote. It's short. Listen to it. Be humbled. Be humbled. Walk softly. Down, down for God's sake, my dear and worthy brother, with your topsail. Stoop. Stoop. It is a low entry to go in at heaven's gate. Discipleship 101 begins with this understanding of grace. We come to Jesus humbly, needy, lowly. Hands, empty and open. Second, Jesus makes it clear that a true disciple has a heart full of love, and not just any love, an extraordinary, supernatural kind of love. Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. The fact that love is commanded here, it tells us something. It tells us, first of all, that love must be something far more than an emotion. You can't, you can't command an emotion. You can't command a feeling. In the Bible, love is far more than a feeling. Love is demonstrated in concrete actions. And Jesus will go on to give us some concrete examples of what this love looks like. But note first the object of our love. Love your enemies. Love those who hate you. Those who curse you, who abuse you. He goes on to say, even sinners love those who love them. In other words, there's nothing remarkable, remarkable about that. Everyone loves those people who already love them. Even bad men love their mamas. Even the mafia looks out for its own. There's nothing impressive about that. But this love, the love of the disciple, the love of Jesus himself, is a love for enemies. It's a love for the people who hate us, who want to hurt us, who want the worst for us. And what does this love look like? Jesus gives us examples. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Think about that. Someone strikes you, you don't retaliate. You hold your punches. You save your gunpowder. You don't engage. When someone steals from you, you respond to their hostility with generosity. This is a type of love that is willing to suffer, willing to suffer repeatedly for the good of the other. It's a type of life that is always looking for ways to give, not demanding anything in return. And then in verse 31, what's been called the golden rule, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, how can we possibly be called to live this way? 
Are we to care nothing about justice? Is that what Jesus is teaching here, that to be a disciple means we care nothing about justice in the world? No, that's not what he's saying. Listen, Jesus is teaching us that we are to rely on him to trust him, that in his perfect timing, when he returns to complete his plan for the world, that's when all sad things will come untrue. That's when he, the king himself, will set all things right. We trust him to handle justice. We trust him to make the world right. In the meantime, we are to love our enemies. In the meantime, we are to prioritize our enemies over our own stuff, over our own selves. This is the way Jesus himself loves. At the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus goes to the cross, he is hanging on a cross after he has been beaten by people, after his clothing has been taken from him. And on the cross, looking at his enemies, Jesus prays. He responds with one of the highest forms of love. He prays for his enemies. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, maybe you hear that and you say, yes, but that's Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Of course he can do that. I'm only flesh. But if you're a believer, you have the spirit of God living within you, inspiring you, empowering you with this same love. In the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, by the way, so you can think of Acts as Luke volume 2. In Luke volume 2, we meet a man named Stephen. He's the first Christian martyr. Stephen is being beaten. He's being stoned. And as he is being murdered by this violent crowd, he does the same thing Jesus did on the cross. He prays for his enemies. He prays for their repentance, for their forgiveness. As these people are taking his life, his dying words are, I want them to be saved. Do you see how different that is from what we see in our culture, from what we see in the movies? Think about every scene from every action film. When someone is about to be killed, they always look into the eyes of their killer and what do they say? I'll see you in hell, right? That's what they always say. Stephen says, I hope I see you in heaven. I'm praying for your salvation. I'm praying for your repentance and forgiveness even as you take my life. This is a supernatural love. We can't muster this on our own. It must be supplied. It must be given to us by Jesus himself. See, when you come to Jesus rightly, humbly, remember when you come to him as a beggar, he treats you like a king and one of the things he gives you is his own love. The ability to love people this way. And just think about it. If you can love your enemies this way, then think about how you can love your family. Jesus changes everything. A disciple has a heart full of love. One last point. Jesus also makes it clear that disciples have eyes fixed on truth. Fixed on truth. Here at the end of his sermon... It seems that Jesus covers a wide range of unrelated topics. I'm going to try to show you that they all fit together quite nicely under this theme of eyes fixed on truth. He first implies that we must test our teachers, test every teacher. Look at what he says. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? 
Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus wants us to understand that there are many teachers out there. Not all of them are truthful, though it is true that we will all become like our teachers. Did you catch that? There are many teachers out there. They are not all truthful, though it is true that we will all become like our teachers. Therefore, you must test every teacher. This parable that Jesus tells about the blind man, it gives us this image that at one point in life, we are going to be blind. We are going to be in need of guidance. So the question is, to whom do we turn for that guidance? If we turn to someone who thinks they have the truth, but really and truthfully they don't, then we are simply going to be led into the pit. It's a blind man leading a blind man. It will only lead to ruin and destruction. We must test every teacher. And if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, if your eyes are fixed on the truth of God's word, then you will know when a human teacher ought to be followed and when it's just a blind man leading you toward the pit. So that's the first point. Test every teacher. Then he teaches us how to spot sin, first in ourselves and then in our brothers and sisters. Look at this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, Jesus says, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So still under this heading of keeping our eyes fixed on truth, Jesus has just called us to test our teachers. Now he says, search yourself. And only after you have searched yourself can you help your brother or sister. How is it that we come to see sin in our own hearts, in our own lives? Only when our eyes are fixed on the truth of God's word. God's word is a mirror. In it, you will discover your own sin. And it will lead you to Jesus where you will find forgiveness. You'll never see your own sinful tendencies. You're, you'll never see the things in your heart and life that need to change if you're not studying God's word. If your eyes aren't fixed on truth. And we must see our own sin first. Then we'll be in a position to help our brother or sister. See, it's not only true that God's word is a mirror. God's word is also like spectacles through which we are able to see how we can best serve and help our fellow believers. But the order is important. See that here in the passage. Jesus sort of gives us a little cartoon here. It's like if Pinocchio, with a tree for a schnoz, looked to you and said, hey, you get a little... Uh, you get a little something right here on your nose. Jesus gives us a very similar cartoon. We have this massive log sticking out of our eye. And we go up to our brother or sister and say, hey, you know, you got a little in the eye right there. It's kind of, it's really bugging me. Can you take care of that? You hypocrite, he says. First, deal with your own sin, which begins by seeing it. Then confess it to the Lord, the one who offers forgiveness then and only then are we in a position to help our brother or sister. But don't wiggle out from under this passage. Jesus does call us to help our brother and sister. 
He doesn't say deal with your sin and then forget about your brother or sister. See, the loving thing to do when you have someone in your life who has fallen into sin, maybe they are following a blind man. They're going down the wrong path. The loving thing to do is to help them, to call them back to the truth. But a word of caution is in order here. Jesus expects there to be a strong communal bond for that to happen. This is a brother or sister in Christ. Notice how many times he uses brother or sister language in this passage. There must be a strong bond, a connection between these people for that correction to happen. Because correction is painful, right? It's painful to give. It's painful to receive. You should not hit hard if you don't hug hard. You should not hit hard if you don't hug hard. Correction without affection is just clobbering someone. You need that strong relationship. I remember many years ago, I was at a conference of biblical scholars. And at this conference, one of the keynote speakers was a systematic theologian. Now, to catch my drift here, you don't have to understand all the differences between a biblical scholar and a systematic theologian. Just know that they are quite different, different in the way they're trained, different in the types of texts they read. This systematic theologian, in the introduction of his keynote talk, I remember him cracking a joke and saying that even if his argument was right, even if it was right, it wouldn't be convincing because he was in a room full of biblical scholars. And they would all look at him as being too far removed. This is not his area of expertise. He's too disconnected. Listen to me. If you don't have a strong relationship, a strong connection with that person, you might be right, but you probably won't be convincing. You probably won't be convincing. So sometimes you are the right person to help them see the speck. Other times, you should exercise the ministry of holding your tongue all the while praying that God will raise up the right person to exercise the ministry of removing the speck. We see our own sin first. We help our brother or sister when we have that relationship to do so. Finally, at the very end of the passage, Jesus gives us two analogies. For the sake of time, we'll look only at the final one. A little short story here. He ends with an illustration. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he says, and not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The contrast here, remember Jesus started this sermon by talking about two postures of heart, the one who's blessed, the one who's warned. He ends the sermon by talking about two paths of life. The two paths, I've highlighted them for you to be sure you see them. He's talking about the person who hears his word and does it. Discipleship is faith and formation, belief and obedience. The person who hears his word and does it is a person who will be stable, who will not be shaken. 
On the other hand, the person who hears his word, that's what we're doing right now, hears his word but does not act on it, does not obey, ignores, disregards, this person is destined for ruin. Look, you don't have to live in Florida for very long to learn this. We cannot schedule calamities, right? They just come when they want. And all we can do is try to be ready for them. The image Jesus gives us here is that life on this earth right now, because the king has not returned to complete his plan, all sad things have not yet come untrue, this life will be full of trials and tribulations and calamities. And the truth, the truth of God's word is the only thing that will bring stability to your life. It is the only thing that will make you unshakable when those calamities come, whenever that happens. But on the other hand, if you just disregard God's truth, if you act as if, no, I've got everything I need, my hands are full, then when that calamity comes, you will not be ready for it. His sermon ends with this this great thud of a house ruined, destroyed. And that's it. It's the final words of his sermon. He leaves us with that. Mic drop. He leaves us with this warning. There's a godly couple in our church, some good friends of ours. And she is struggling, battling cancer. And you know what I can tell you about her? She is the strongest, most stable person I think I've ever met. She doesn't know how many days she has left on this earth. And I've never met anyone stronger, more unshakable. How does that happen? The truth. The truth deep down in the heart, it's the only thing that makes us ready for things like that. When the calamities come, when the trials and the tribulations come, you will be ready if you have committed your life to Jesus, gone to him humbly. When you do that, he will embrace you. He will treat you like a king, fill you with his love, guide you with his truth. And so whatever you meet, you will be stable. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence in our lives so that even when the hard times come, and they will come, you are with us, guiding us, empowering us. Lord, it's so good to know that you are in control, that you're always working for our good and for your glory. My prayer this morning is that if there is someone here who has not yet surrendered to you, not yet run to you humbly in need of grace, that you would work in their heart today. Draw them. Give them the gift of faith. 
And for those of us who are following you, Jesus, give us the strength we need to endure the pains, to love our enemies well, the way you have loved us. Fill us with your love now and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank <laughs> you.